continue our series on foundations and, and continuing exactly where we left off last Wednesday night with Genesis chapter 41. Let's read some verses together and then we'll pray. Genesis 41, verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. And he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. I have heard say thee of thee that thou canst interpret a dream to interpret it, understand a dream. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for this privilege, the fellowship of the saints, Lord, and the fellowship of the Spirit. I just ask God you'll use this time in our hearts and our lives. May everybody here, this pastor included, this preacher here standing, all of us recognize we're not here by accident and that you have a word for us. And I pray we will hear it and heed it in this dark, dying world. In Jesus' name, amen. The foundational book of Scripture, the book of Genesis, is an amazing, supernatural, inspired, preserved and glorious Word of God. And as we've noted, it is entirely unique in, in its outline and in how it's presented. It sort of reminds me in a way of how my dad used to take our family on these really long drives, and especially when we moved all over the place, being in the Air Force, moving from Texas all the way to Virginia, the drive from Wichita Falls to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, my mom drove us from Fort Lauderdale, all the little kids, dad was in Korea, from Fort Lauderdale to Norfolk, Virginia. And of course, in the 60s, you know, the windows were all open and money was very tight, so you just drive all night long. And so as a journey, most of it is just hurry up. It's just drive and drive fast. And that means if there was a famous landmark, dad might slow down to 60 miles an hour and say, look, boys, there's the Gateway Arch. Uh, look out your windows in St. Louis, and you look up, and uh, bye, and that was about it. 630 feet tall, major tourist attraction, built in 1963, and you might get a glimpse of it, and that's all. But then, if Dad sees a big cotton field, and we're driving past it, he's likely to pull over. He's likely to pull over and say, guys, get out. Boys, get out. Go pick some cotton. I got some stories to tell you about what it was like picking cotton and all that. And you have these little souvenir of cotton that you stole. Hey, kids, see that tobacco barn? Pull over. Go check out this tobacco barn. I'm going to explain to you how they did these things and so on. Well, Genesis is a journey sort of like that. You know, Genesis 1 and 2 covers all of the creation story, the entire universe, in two chapters. If you think about that for a moment, Genesis chapter 3 through 14 covers about 1,000 years. Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, and of course, with some men, like Jacob, for example, as we studied in the past few weeks, the car sort of pulls over. And instead of just speeding past and saying, check out Jacob, there's all kinds of lessons and shadows and truths, both macro and micro. We see families that are dysfunctional and sibling rivalry and all these little fights and God working in their lives. Genesis 14 to 36 covers another 1 
thousand years. Just driving past all this stuff. But then we come to Joseph. Joseph is 13 chapters, one man. Chapter 37 through 50, and it covers less than 100 years. 100 years, 25% of this foundational book is on this one man. God really parks the car here. And beloved, for very clear and divine reasons, now in our minds we understand, God is telling us about this man. Again, I would have liked for the Lord to pull the car over, spend a lot more time on the six days of creation. I mean, two chapters? It's like having... You know, you drop your kids off at the Smithsonian and say, you kids, you got 15 minutes. <laughs> Except, of course, since this is Scripture, it's not like that at all. Because those two chapters in the book of Genesis about creation as a foundation are precisely what we need and what God gives to his people from his heart. So that, again, when you read in Genesis how God really slows down sort of and now lingers over the life of one man, this man Joseph. You take note of exactly what he says, recognizing and knowing there's a reason for this. Which brings us again to this chapter in Genesis chapter 41. By the way, I think it's important for a moment at this point to quickly review the events of Joseph's life as we've studied them the past couple weeks. Jacob, his father, fled from the face of his brother Esau, and he ran to the land of Padanaram. There he would work for 14 long years to get the bride of his choice, Rachel. They had a son named Joseph, this man. Joseph, who as a teenager, had a dream. It was a dream that made his brothers very, very angry. So angry, they were half-brothers, of course. They end up conspiring against him. They sell him into Egyptian slavery. And then the slave owner, who was Pharaoh's chief bodyguard, had a Jezebel wife. And his Jezebel wife framed Joseph because he wouldn't yield to her temptations, and so he was placed in jail. That Hebrew slave now is a prisoner. He's in the dungeon. That means he's awaiting his death. But of course, as it says repeatedly in the Bible, we noted last week, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord made Joseph to prosper. It didn't look like it. Joseph couldn't see it. It didn't sound like it. Nobody would have agreed with that, but that was still the truth of the matter. Two fellow prisoners, also Pharaoh's household and palace is where they worked. They had dreams while Joseph is in jail. Joseph interprets their dreams and is then forgotten. Forgotten by the butler, forgotten by his former master, forgotten by his own brothers, but not forgotten by God. These are lessons that God wants you to know. So one night, God gives Pharaoh insomnia, the king of Egypt, the ruler of the world, and it's a pretty bad dream himself. Pharaoh tries his psychic hotline. Pharaoh tries his Ouija boards. He tries his spoon benders and all those guys, and they couldn't interpret the dream. Suddenly, he hears about Joseph. Joseph, who's in prison, is called out of that prison and... He not only interprets the dream, as you all know, but he counsels Pharaoh as to what to do about what his dream says. Pharaoh is so pleased, the Bible says, that he eventually makes Joseph the most powerful man in Egypt next only to himself. That means that he is the second most powerful man in the world. 
literally on the face of the earth. A power that only increases exponentially at the end of this famine. You know, I've often wondered what it must have been like when that night Potiphar gets home from work, you know, when it's revealed that this man is promoted and Potiphar goes home and he walks into his house and he he says to his wife, hey Jez, remember that slave Joseph that used to work for us and, and we had him put into prison? She's, oh yeah, that scoundrel. Did they put him to death yet? Has he been executed? No, he says, actually he's now my boss. <laughs> in fact, now he's the grand vizier of all of Egypt, the most powerful man in the land. And I just hope your accusations were just. And I hope they were true because he wants to see me tomorrow or whatever. Well, fortunately for Potiphar's wife, Joseph is not a vengeful, bitter man. In part because many years before Genesis 41, God had already revealed to Joseph in a dream that he had a unique, a specific role to play in the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, this whole story of Genesis, this whole foundational book is about God's plan of redemption. And you see it happening over and over and Satan fights it and God works and Satan fights it and God continues to work. Somehow, Joseph is going to be, the this is the dream he has as a teenager. Somehow, he's going to be the center of attention both from his brothers and from his parents. I have no doubt that Joseph didn't understand all of the details of that dream, at least not at the time. You may recall then that he had this first dream. In the first dream, he sees a harvest field and all of these sheaves of, of grain are standing up in an orderly row. And then there's his sheaf. That's him. And then all the sheaves of his brothers. And suddenly, in his dream, all of the other sheaves bowed down to his sheaf. Eleven, to be specific. He then dreamed a second time. And in this dream, the Bible says that Joseph saw the sun, the moon, and eleven stars. And all of them are bowing down before him. Boy, and he shares the dream with his family. They just love this dream. The question, of course, for Joseph and what it should have been for his brothers and all of them is what does it mean? A man, Joseph, who could interpret, think about this, the dreams of the baker and the butcher and Pharaoh himself. It is entirely possible that the meaning behind these dreams wasn't all that secret anymore. Because for one thing, the bowing of the sheaves surely meant position and power for Joseph. Even his own brothers understood that. And of course, as a harvest field, it would symbolically picture earthly power and earthly position. Maybe he'd be a clan leader someday. Maybe he was going to be a prince or a sheik or whatever. But there's that other dream. Because you understand the stars picture something else. They also picture position and power, but demonstrate a rule that is somehow going to exceed his own family. You know, the sun and the moon in Genesis that we just read about a few weeks back ruled the entire earth, the Bible says. So how could it possibly be? How in the world could it be then that somehow Joseph, thrown into a pit to die, sold as a slave, framed by people of power, is about to die, be executed? How is that same man going to be in this kind of place of a position? You can only imagine what young Joseph must have thought or felt. When here in chapter 41, he can look back now 
and we can do this, he can look back on the events of his life and see himself coming before the king of Egypt, the ruler of the world, so that he knows, wow, this is not a coincidence. Verse 25, And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. God hath showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now again, beloved, follow this carefully. Picture young Joseph. He's now clean-shaved. When you're in a dungeon in Egypt or anywhere, you're just, you're a mess. He's clean-shaved. He's got the fresh court robes placed upon him, taken into the royal presence of Pharaoh, who is the most powerful man in all of the world in those days. A man who, by the way, was, was supposed to be the incarnation of God himself. Pharaoh was the incarnation of Ra. He was the absolute epitome of earthly and worldly power. But if you read the narrative, you'll see that that's not true for, of Joseph. Not in Joseph's mind, the Pharaoh was just a man who didn't know the one true God, who couldn't even have his dreams interpreted. And so the king demands of jo Joseph, interpret my dreams, young man, tell me what you know. And of course, Satan must have whispered in Joseph's ear because we saw him whisper in Jesus' ear in the wilderness. He must have tempted him in that moment. Joseph, this is your time. Don't blow it. This is your moment. Seize this opportunity and promote yourself. Do not insult the king and ruin this. You see, beloved, had Joseph been like a, a lot of modern-day preachers, a lot of televangelists and so forth, he would have just said, O king, Ra has shown me the interpretation. Or, O king, Egyptian culture and education has revealed to me this dream, or your highness's spiritual presence here has shown me the dream. He could have compromised. He could have been seeker-sensitive. He could have played some political calculation. And he could have sought after praise. But instead, this is what he says. Go back to verse 16. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. There's, there's no praise for me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Wait a minute. I thought Pharaoh was God. Not in Joseph's mind. God will give me the answer. Verse 25. And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. God hath showed Pharaoh. You're no God. God has showed Pharaoh what he, not you Pharaoh, what he, God, is about to do. In other words, note this, he first gives a word of Bible truth in which Pharaoh was dethroned. And the true and the living God was put in absolute control of the entire world, including these very events. And then he goes to Pharaoh's dream. And what does he say then? Verse 26, the seven good kind are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dream is one. And the seven thin and ill-favored kind that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears, ears of corn or wheat, blasted with the east wind shall be seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken unto Pharaoh. What God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. Now follow this, beloved, again. He says, Pharaoh, these cattle that are fat and flourishing, in your dream, they represent seven years of plenty. 
The cattle that you saw in your dream that are weak and anemic and, and starved are seven years of famine, both of which are going to come upon this, the nation of Egypt. And of course, naturally, once everyone hears the key to Pharaoh's dream, naturally, it's kind of obvious then what these dreams meant. And the truth is, knowing human nature, I'm sure some of Pharaoh's cabinet members may have dismissed Joseph here and said, well, yeah, duh. We can see that that's what that means. And, you know, they've accused Joseph of stating the obvious. But then, not stopping with the interpretation of the dream, then Joseph goes on to give the application of that dream. And essentially, it becomes a short lesson in economics. Verse 32, And for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice, it is because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, I'll get to what the doubled part means, the two, in a moment. Verse 33, Now therefore let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land, and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that come and lay up corn onto the hand of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. And that food shall be for store in the land against the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land perish not through the famine. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the old expression, the ever normal granaries. It actually comes from the Qing Dynasty in China. but The Qing Dynasty didn't come up with it. It's actually, this is actually where that comes from. That whole idea, that economic philosophy with grain and storing it. And of course, what Joseph is advising here, basically saying, you, look, you put 20% of the grain when you have these seven years of plenty. Take 20% and put it away, store it away. This is just good, wise economic policy. I wish our people in Washington would understand some good, wise economic policy. But that's not all. Because he also tells Pharaoh in verse 35 to store the grain in various cities, not in one place, but in various cities all through the land of Egypt. And there's a reason for that. It's because in the time of famine, the hardest thing to accomplish is distribution. All you have to do is look at the Sudan and Ethiopia and post-war Germany, even our own Great Depression, and you will see that without proper distribution, you can have all kinds of stuff. People will starve, people will die, and others will hoard and prosper. So obviously, Joseph has been given tremendous wisdom by God. He has been given tremendous foresight. And that's not lost on Pharaoh at all when he hears all of this. So, keep reading. Again, this is the Lord pulling the car over and saying, look, why don't you see what I did? Verse 37, and the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, can we find such a one as this is a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, for as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. I mean, Pharaoh even says, look, nobody's as wise or discreet as you because God gave you this. He even recognizes it. So what's he going to do? He's going to say in verse 40, look at it. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. 
Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. Wow. You're in charge. My throne is higher than yours, but it's your word that matters. What you say, we're going to do. You think about this man, this young man from rags to riches. You have an overnight success. This young man has gone from the prison, the lowest of the low of the low of the low, to the highest of the high of the high, from a prison to the throne. But beloved, that's the thing. This is not some overnight success. Look at verse 46, would you? And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. In other words, think about this. It had been 13 years. Just do the math. It has now been 13 years since Joseph was sold into slavery. 13 years of servitude and prison life that God has used to mold and prepare this boy, this man now, for this very moment. Joseph was faithful in the little things. God is making him, is entrusting him with the biggest thing. Go back to verse 42. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in a second chariot, which he had. And they cried before him, bow the knee. And he made him a ruler over all the land of Egypt. By the way, that ring, of course, was the official signet. That ring would seal official documents by pressing it into soft clay. And it showed that Joseph had all authority and all power. And let me just say this. As an interesting sidelight historically to all of this, I think it helps to know another reason that Pharaoh was so eager to promote Joseph and so eager to trust him. At this particular time in Egyptian history, the empire was being ruled, ruled by the Hyksos kings, H-Y-K-S-O-S. The Hyksos were not native Egyptians, they were Bedouins. They were Bedouins who were natives of the Arabian desert. In other words, they were sons of Shem. And as a nomadic group, for a while, they took over the rule of Egypt. And you know what that meant? That meant that the pharaohs were actually closer in nationality to Joseph than to the native Egyptians. And for all of the Hyksos kings, it was very hard for them to find someone in Egypt that they really trusted, that they completely Saul is loyal. Years later, as you know, the Hyksos kings would be expelled from Egypt, and we know what happened in Exodus when it says, there arose up a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. He didn't know Joseph, and he didn't like the Jews, and the rest of that is history. But for this Pharaoh, he saw in Joseph what he himself called the Spirit of God. And it brings us to this. Obviously, there's a lot more to study, and we will, and a lot more to say about Genesis 41. But can I just say that in the light of this world economy and of so many changes in the world scene today, I think it's appropriate to take note here of what is the greatest lesson of all. 
What is the single greatest lesson in Joseph's life and career all the way up to this point? Because man, do we need this. Look at verse 32. And for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice, it is because the thing is established by God. And God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, why is it that two versions of the dream testify to the fact that these dreams are of God? Two is the number of witness in the Bible. By two or more witnesses, the law says, let it be established. Jesus sent the witnesses out two by two, the Bible says. Two witnesses in Revelation, and so it goes. And especially in Joseph's life. Remember, he had two dreams. He had two imprisonments. He had two uh, dreams, dreamers while he was in prison and so on. And now he has these two dreams of Pharaoh, two. There's no doubt in Joseph's mind that these dreams are of God. But beloved, that's not all. That's not all the Bible tells us here about this. Because not only were the dreams of God, what God wants us to see is this entire situation, indeed the entire world situation, is also of God. Look at verse 25 again. Let's see it. And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, the dream of Pharaoh is one. God hath showed Pharaoh what he, what he is about to do. Verse 28, this is the thing which I have spoken unto Pharaoh. What God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. Verse 32, and for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice, it is because the thing is established by God. And God will shortly bring it to pass. You see, beloved, one of the single most important lessons of Joseph's life, maybe the most, is that God is fully in control of all world events. Nothing happens in this world that derails or could derail the plan of God. I'll remind you that Joseph had his dream 13 years before this. Now ponder this, 13 years ago. In about seven more years from here, when his brothers come to Egypt for food because the famine is worldwide, his dream, his prophecy, is going to be fulfilled. That's 20 years before the famine ever comes. 20 years before the famine is revealed unto Joseph. And that's not all, because the result of this famine would be the moving of Israel into Egypt. So how did the Jews ever get into Egypt in the first place? Right here. The whole family goes there, and God prophesied that 200 years before this. 200 years before this, God gives a prophecy that Israel will go into Egypt. In that prophecy, he says that Egypt would enslave the people of Israel for 400 years. That's 400 more years of world history, not just predicted by God, dictated by God. Reminding us yet again that God is always on his throne. And that what really matters in, in world and human events is his covenant. His plan of redemption. The fact that you're here on a Wednesday night in 2024 and sang a few moments ago about the blood of the Lamb, that's because God made sure that His Son would be born and would shed His blood and would die and, 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 and be resurrected and save souls, bringing many sons to glory. 
What is really important is that. It is his plan of salvation and redemption. So the question is, what about this world? What about this war in Ukraine and and now in Gaza? And what about the United Nations spinning around not knowing what to do in Iran and the the Houthis in Yemen, Yemen? And Pastor, what about the current situation in Sudan? You know, people don't even realize there's a war in Sudan now. Thousands and thousands of people have died. What about Afghanistan, which is a mess? And Myanmar, our missionary. Zam had to tell Chris, do not come to Myanmar. It's a war. In the Congo. All I can tell you right now is, with certainty is this. God is in control of all of it. All of it. Now, if you were a believer in the days of Joseph, and you were living in Canaan, the promised land, and all of a sudden there's a famine in Canaan, the promised land, and you have to move, and even worse, you have to go down to Egypt, the godless pagan nation, and that place is getting rich, wealthy off of this famine, what might you conclude? Well, you might conclude that everything's gone wrong. You might conclude that things are upside down. You might even conclude that people need to have prayer meetings and they get together and they pray that that Egypt has the famine and Canaan has the bread. You might even conclude that God's plan has gone awry, but you'd be so wrong. God's plan never goes awry. God will be glorified always in His will. That's not to say that Christians today should be quiet or passive fatalistic oh no it's actually the opposite we as believers in this society in this year right now today we ought to be just like joseph faithful honest hardworking, spiritually minded discerning forgiving as we'll see in the weeks ahead and certainly prayerful i don't know you don't know how events are going to turn out in our nation this year I don't even know to what degree our God at this point is for or against American foreign policy or domestic policy but here's what I know his plan is a lot bigger than who has the grain or who doesn't have the grain his plan is a whole lot bigger than who's at the White House aren't you glad about that His plan is bigger than anybody we can see with the human eye so that tonight we're going to trust his word. We're going to pray for our nation. We're going to pray for our leaders and we're going to serve and worship and obey the God of this book until our eyes behold our king. And yes, as we look at Joseph wearing this Egyptian robe and ring, I realize something in my life today, right now. I realize something. This is the nation God has put me in. And this is the government. America happens to be my ordained powers that be, as Paul says in Romans. So obeying his word, I will pray for. And to the degree that God tells me, I will submit to the the powers that be, trusting and serving the God of the universe. Because it's not just that God put me in this nation with this government and put Joseph in that nation with that government. 
It is also that he didn't put me in this nation and this government in 1776. He didn't put me here in 1876. We are here in 2024, the exact place and time God has ordained for us. Now, am I as excited that this is an American presidential election year? I am not excited about that at all. Are you excited about it? I mean, in the sense that, am I thrilled that for the next 11, 12 months, we're going to be bombarded with false narratives and empty promises and flat-out lies and total misinformation? You say, oh yeah, I know what you mean, Pastor. Those political ads and those candidates, they sure do lie. Now, I'm talking about the media, okay? Now, it's even the truth-tellers are the ones we have to hear and listen to. I'm not really looking forward to months of histrionics and lies and darkness, power-hungry people. However, I'm not fearful. I'm not fearful. I'm not dismayed. I'm not confused. I'm not bitter. None of us should be. None of us should look at world events or national events and ever say, oh, things have gone off the rails, not God's rails. Because as you'll see soon, whatever they mean for evil, God means it for good. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And I do pray, Lord, that we will look at Joseph's life and recognize that here's a man who had far less light, far, far less revelation, far less of what we have as your people tonight with this book and the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And thousands of years of your faithfulness that we can see and look back upon. And yet he trusted you. He forgave his brothers. He was faithful to you. He was not ashamed of you or your message. I ask, Father, that we will see and, and look at that and recognize that, that we have even a greater ability and responsibility to do the same now. Thank you that you're on your throne. Thank you that we can see with our, our eyes people who have been redeemed by the blood all because you've kept your word. And there hath not failed one word of all your promise. Help us to trust you this year in Jesus' precious name. Amen.